Page 922, Micah chapter 5. Do you have a favorite road sign? I have a favorite road sign. This is a simple one. Uh, The signs around here that say, Thickly Settled. It is a quintessential New England road sign. It doesn't exist in other parts of the universe, only here. Uh, Anytime we've had out-of-town guests come and they see the signs, they ask the same question, what does that mean? This might shock the Massachusetts Transit Authority. People are not born with the innate knowledge of what thickly settled means on a road sign. They just don't know that. Let me read to you what the law says. Thickly settled means the territory contiguous to any way where the dwelling houses are situated at such distances as will average less than 200 feet between them for a distance of a quarter mile or over in a thickly settled area other than a school zone exceeding 30 miles an hour for an eighth of a mile is speeding. That's what thickly settled means. It means bureaucracy is at work. There was a meeting with high-powered executives in our government, and they said, how do we communicate that there's a lot of homes and we don't want you to go over 30 miles an hour? We could put 30 on the sign. Don't be so dumb. (laughs) The only thing that makes sense is to put thickly settled on the sign and be quaint and xenophobic and just assume that people ought to know what it means. Very well, it is law. That's how that happens. Um, The meanings of the signs are largely lost on people. I I do like them a lot. I think they're great. But uh, we we might look at the sign and know it means we're supposed to drive slower, but we don't know exactly how slow. may not even understand exactly why we're supposed to drive slower. The Advent theme of peace is like the thickly settled road sign of the Advent calendar. We know it's important. We know we should want it. But we may not really know what it means. The word peace has all kinds of different variations and nuances in our culture. It's ruined decades ago by dirty hippies who took it and turned it into a symbol. It's just fun to say dirty hippies, any opportunity you get. But our culture has taken it, and like it does with everything, changed the meaning, changed the expression, turned it into something other than what the Bible gives us. Peace in our culture means largely getting along, which is a good thing. It means absence of war. That's definitely a good thing. But the peace that comes from God is a different kind of peace altogether in terms of its robustness, in terms of its life-changing power, in terms of the blessing it brings. It is a peace of a different variety. And so you may not say today, you know, of all the spiritual endeavors you are pursuing, that you're pursuing peace Because there's something that seems very idyllic and just sort of sweet about it. But when we stop and we think for a moment about how embattled our souls are, what a faux sin is, and you know what it's like to have a noisy soul? When, When we are in that place, then peace doesn't seem like such a hypothetical, but rather something we're desperate for. And so today we're going to study the idea of peace from the Old Testament prophet Micah. My goal today is to improve your understanding of peace in order to improve your experience of peace. I want to put some flesh around this word in the hopes that you'll embrace the one who is our peace. 
What would you do if today you could have God's peace? You can. Micah shows us how. So to do this, I want to show you from Micah chapter 5, four characteristics of God's peace for his people. But before we dive in, let me first introduce you to our writer, the man named Micah. Now, Micah is a prophet both to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. He's primarily a prophet to Judah. He speaks primarily to that audience. He himself is from Judah. He's from a little country town about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, a town called Moresheth. And he is, he is your blue-collar prophet. He doesn't live in the city. He doesn't frequent the city. He lives out in the country. We don't know a lot about Micah outside of his name, his hometown, and the time period in which he prophesies. He was a younger contemporary of Isaiah. Both he and Isaiah prophesy at the same time as King Ahaz, one of Israel's wicked kings. Uh, Micah's prophecies in his book, they span a, a large Uh, breadth of time, a large period of time. So what we have here in this book encompasses about 30 years of Micah's life. We've got it divided up into just eight chapters. You can read 30 years of Micah's work in about an hour uh, at your dinner table. Uh, But it it covers a, a large span, and the book is structured in a really fascinating way. There is a balance between words of judgment and words of hope. There are some grammatical clues that divide the book into three very distinct sections. Each of those three sections begins with words of judgment to God's people. You've sinned, you've defied God, you've broken the covenant. This is what comes next. But that word of judgment is always balanced with a word of hope, a word of grace to God's people. And that balance happens three different times in Micah's book. It's a really beautiful piece of literature, a very hopeful piece of literature. It kind of reminds me of the book of James. If you're familiar with the book of James in the New Testament, James in one verse can speak with real severity to people he loves, and then the next line, turn around and speak with great compassion and warmth. Micah does much the same thing in the message that he delivers. By the time we get to Micah chapter 5, We find Micah in the middle of a passage of grace and hope, but it's a grace that comes in the midst of turmoil, and I want you to look at it with me. Micah chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I'm going to go to the first line of verse 5. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. I want to show you in this passage four characteristics of God's peace for us. If you're taking notes, number one, God's peace is for broken people. Verse one, God's peace is for broken people. People. If you don't want to write broken people, scratch it out and put your name in it instead. That's who God's peace 
is for all of us broken people. Verse 1 opens with a really stark scene. Remember I said this is set in a part of the book that is full of hope and grace, but verse 1 starts with this really alarming scene in the city of Jerusalem. It says this, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. So Micah foresees a day when an enemy army has surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem and is laying siege to the city. He's not speaking as it happens. He is foreseeing it through the wisdom and insight of God. Now, the language in verse 1 is a little hard to make sense of, and so your translation of the Bible might say something different than from what I've read this morning. Rather than saying, marshal your troops, O city of troops, it, it may say, uh, marshal your troops, O daughter of troops. It may say daughter instead of city. Instead of marshal your troops, it might say, you gash yourself. The, the differences in translation are pretty, pretty significant, but it doesn't change the meaning or the tone of the verse altogether. The, the tone is the same. It is desperation. It is alarm. The enemy has come. It's time to rally what troops you have. But here's the thing. You don't keep massive numbers of troops inside a city. You don't have a, an army strong enough, big enough in your city to take on the enemy outside the city. Maybe at best you have some sort of, 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 of like a raiding party, some tiny militia, but, but you don't have enough to really defend and protect. In that scene in the line that comes next, it says, they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So he foresees a day when the city is under siege and the enemy breaks in, takes the king captive, strikes him in the face with a rod. The king is treated like some common street criminal by the enemy that comes in and takes him. It's a really dire scene. It's a helpless scene. There's utter humiliation for God's people. When the holy city, the capital city, is ransacked, the king is made a mockery of, it's dark times for God's people. And that seems to be precisely where God most often begins his saving work in our lives. We tend to find God when we are at the end of ourselves, not when we are at our best life now, but when we are at the worst of the worst. That's where you and I, with Surprising clarity, hear the voice of God, and faith can be awakened in us. It's in our hopelessness, our turmoil, our war, that God brings rescue. Sadly, all too often we get this reversed. We think that if, if I put an end to my difficulties, if I do the good thing, then God's going to bend my way. Or we assume that if just in, in my frantic busyness, my shallow spirituality, well, God's going to be honored And we will then be blessed. But that's just not the reality of our situations. And that's just not the way God works. The reality of our situation is this. That apart from God, our souls are like a city under siege. We're like a king humiliated by his enemies. Now Micah's words are not an analogy just for us to take and reassign meaning to. But still, he describes the steady state of every heart that is not connected to the Father. It is a life at war, hopeless, utterly empty, utterly powerless, in need of rescue, and that's where God does his work. 
if passages like this are going to mean more to us than just quaint Christmas readings where we say, oh, look, there's Bethlehem in the Old Testament. Hooray. Well, then we have to come face to face with the turmoil that runs our lives, with the humiliation we try and stuff down, with the sin that is all too prevalent. Those are the places where we meet God. The great struggle of the Christmas season, I'm not going to tell you something you don't know here, is, is all these idyllic images of families that never fight, kids who obey with perfection, smiles that never end, calories that don't pack on pounds, and the right present every time. And then we succumb to the pressure to be just as plastic as the images the holiday puts in front of us. But I want to urge you not to settle for the appearance of okay. It's far better to confess your sinful brokenness and to meet God in that honest and messy place because peace is for broken people, and that's us. Second truth about God's peace you need to know today. God's peace comes from a stubborn promise. God's peace comes from a stubborn promise promise in verse 2. Write stubborn promise in all caps. Underline it 15 times. Circle it. Put arrows to it. God's peace comes from a stubborn promise. So from verse 1 to verse 2, Micah's prophecy changes focus. It changes focus from one town to another, from the city to the village, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. The word Ephrathah is just an old name for Bethlehem, before they modernized and called themselves Bethlehem. Uh, You'll find that name written in the book of Genesis. And Micah references how small Bethlehem is. You are small among the clans of Judah. How small is Bethlehem? It's not just small in terms of population. It's small in terms of significance. It is a nothing town. Here's evidence for you. In the book of Joshua chapter 15, There's a list of over a hundred towns that are allotted to Judah. So from this one single region, the region of Judah, a hundred towns are named. Guess who does not make that list of the top 100 towns in Judah? You're going to read about Zorah and Zenoah and Zenan, Ziph and Zer, but no Bethlehem. You're going to read about Baaloth, Beth, Beersheba, Biziothiah, Baalah, and Bozkath, but no Bethlehem in the top 100 list. That's how little and insignificant Bethlehem is. Now today it has prominence. We're just saying about it. But in this day, the old day, it was nothing. And isn't this God's way again? We're, we're looking for musclemen from Jerusalem, but he's going to bring us a baby from Bethlehem. That's how God works. Now, one writer noted that a king coming from Bethlehem has a certain ominous tone to it because that's not where kings are supposed to come from. When you have a capital city, a holy city, that's where the king should come from. So if this were a fill-in-the-blank, out of you, blank, will come a ruler, you would put Jerusalem in that blank. Especially because by the time Micah prophesies, there's already a steady lineage, a line of kings that have sat on the throne 
in Jerusalem. But that's not what the passage says. The king is not coming out of Jerusalem. It's coming out of Bethlehem. So what does that say to us about the state of the monarchy in Jerusalem? The ominous tone is this. The king has to come out of Bethlehem because there's not a king to come out of Jerusalem anymore. The monarchy has fallen. Why would the monarchy fail? For one reason and one reason only. Because the king and his people have broken their covenant with God. They have turned their backs on God. They have chased after false gods. They have denied Yahweh time and time again. And as a result, the monarchy fails. The city is taken captive. Things are dark. You can't find a king in Jerusalem. There's not a throne there. So the king is going to come out of Bethlehem instead. But even though the people have failed, even though the people have turned on God, though they have chased false gods, still a ruler's coming. God's not going to let his promise fail. Verse 2 says, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Those two little words, for me, are huge. Underline them in your Bible. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come for me a ruler over Israel. That for me means this ruler is going to be one who comes in the name of the Lord, who does the will of the Lord for the glory of God. And we're told that the origins of this ruler are from old, from ancient times. Some people might look at that line and they would say, well, this is a statement about the eternal preexistence of the Messiah. And it's true, the Messiah, who is God in the flesh, is eternally preexistent. He's always been. There was never a time when he was not. So that fact is true, but I'm not sure it's supported so well by this line. Rather, I, I think what this line points to is the origin of the promise that God gave to a boy from Bethlehem. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises to David, whose high school diploma says BHS on it, that a king would come from him whose kingdom and throne would endure forever and ever and ever. That's the stubborn promise of God that though his people fail, he does not. Though his people forget, God remembers. He will accomplish salvation and he will bring glory to his name through his ruler because that's what God does. He keeps this defiant, unbreakable, unshakable, stubborn promise rescue. He gave it long ago in Bethlehem to David. He keeps it this day uh, it, to Micah's audience in chapter 5. It comes to fruition the day that Christ is born, and it's the promise we sing about today. God keeps that promise. He's faithful when we're unfaithful. He remains when we run. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us that's good news for every one of us in this room. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you may be a religious person, you may have some Christian experiences, but you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You may approach God in this way, think about it in this way. If I do good for God, then God will do good for me. Here's the problem with this logic. One, you overestimate yourself. Two, you do not know who God is. You overestimate yourself in assuming that you have good in you that would bring pleasure to the God who created all these things with a word. I, I will do good and impress the God of creation. 
You overestimate yourself. Are you capable of doing kind things and good things? Of course you are. But your sin, your defiance to that God overshadows any small good or any great good you could possibly do. You overestimate yourself. You also don't understand God. To think if I do good to God, he'll do good to me paints this picture of a God who sits on a throne panting in desperation for your good things as if he lacks something in himself until you step up and do the nice thing that makes him happy. And that's not God. Here's what God is like. He's done the good thing for you before you even knew you needed it. He sent his son to be born to come and bring salvation. Out of Bethlehem, he fulfills this stubborn promise for people like you and I who do not earn it, do not achieve it, do not desire it, do not ask for it. God brings salvation to people who utterly need it. That stubborn promise is good news for you and I. It's good news for you if you walk with Jesus, if you are a believer. Because you may have come in here today dressed in your Christmas best, but beat to a pulp by sin. And the God who keeps his promises has new mercies every morning for you. This is a day for a fresh start, a day to return, a day to repent and to be made new as you strengthen again your walk with Jesus Christ. Peace comes from this stubborn promise. Peace is for broken people. Third, God's peace reverses sin's curse. This is what it does. God's peace reverses sin's curse in verse 3. Verse 3 is really challenging to make sense of. There's volumes of literature written about how to interpret it and make sense of it. And uh, we don't have time for that, uh, nor interest in that. But let me give you a bit of where I land on it, and you can take it or leave it. That's okay. Look at it with me, verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. There are three things that happen in verse 3. There's an abandonment, there's a birth, and there's a return. Do you see those three things? Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Abandonment, birth, return. The challenge is to make sense of those things. Who are those who are abandoned? Who's the one that gives birth? Who are those that return and are reunited? So let's start with the abandonment. When are God's people abandoned? Therefore, Israel will be abandoned. When are they abandoned? Well, that's what's described in brief in verse 1. The picture of the city under siege, the king being taken captive, There's an abandonment that takes place, an abandonment of God's people by God. And you might think, well, that doesn't sound like God, but here's what you have to remember. That judgment that comes on Israel in the form of the Assyrian army and that judgment that comes on Judah in the form of the Babylonian army are evidences of God's faithfulness to his covenant. It's not an abandonment of relationship. It's abandonment of protection for a time. 
God maintains his relationship with his people. Even in exile, his word still comes through prophets. Even in exile, God works for their, uh, their redemption and their return back, back home. God doesn't abandon them as if to send them to hell and to forget them forever. But for a time, they are in exile under the judgment of God. That's the abandonment that takes place. Before the beauty of verse 2, that ruler king coming out of Israel, before verse 2, they have to endure the abandonment of verse 1. Well, then we talk about a birth. So who gives birth? Again, different scholars have different opinions on this. But we're well within the meaning of the text to say that here is a picture of Mary giving birth to the Messiah. So if you're looking at a timeline, there's this period of abandonment, and then this child is born. A baby is born, the Messiah arrives, and then we have this last line, the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Again, far too brief at this point. Welcome a discussion later about it if you want, but I think the meaning of that line, this return of the brethren, echoes what you read earlier in Ephesians chapter 5. Where we read out loud together about the work of Christ who brings in those who were afar and joins them with those who are near, making one body out of them together. I think that's what Micah is giving us here in verse 3. The brethren who are far away are those who are not part of ethnic Israel, not part of contiguous Israel, geographical Israel. They are those who are far away. And when the Messiah comes, he will bring in those far away, unite them with those who are near. When the Messiah is born, the abandonment is over, and now God's people are united. It's a spiritual union through conversion. They're united to God. They're united to each other. This is what the birth of the Messiah brings about. It reverses sin's curse. The abandonment is over Reunion with God and with each other is what the Messiah makes happen. The presence of the Messiah reverses this curse. It's a great story about the old mayor of New York, Fiorella LaGuardia. I don't know if this story is true, but it's a great story nevertheless. It sounds too good to be true, so I raise an eyebrow at it. But still, here's a great story about LaGuardia, for whom bad airports are named after. Um, he, he's mayor of New York, and in the 30s, he was wildly popular. Uh, he was a mayor for the little man. He himself was a short man, but he, he paid special attention to uh, the poor and impoverished. And so on one cold winter night, January of 1935, he turned up at a night court that served the poorest of the city. And he dismissed the judge for the evening, and he took over the bench himself. And one of the first cases he heard was about this, was an elderly woman who had stolen bread to feed her grandchildren. She described how her son-in-law had left her daughter. Her daughter was sick and without work. The children were starving. She stole a loaf of bread from a local vendor in order to feed uh, her kids. The vendor would not let up. The grocer said, look, Your Honor, we live in a hard neighborhood. This woman has to be punished. Even though the story is sad, she has to be punished in order to teach a lesson to others around there who might do the same thing. And LaGuardia sighed. He knew his hands were tied. The law spoke clearly on this. And so he told her, he said, I have no choice here. Um, it's either a $10 fine or 10 days in jail. And as he announced that, he was already reaching to his wallet, and he pulled out $10 and threw it on the bench. And he said, all right, 
The fine has been paid, but we're not going to stop there. He said, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. So the newspaper reported the next day that the bailiff collected $47.50, 50 cents of which came from the grocer whom she had stolen from, (laughs) and from other police officers who were present, and people who committed traffic violations, and common criminals and things like that. They all pitched in $47.50, and then they all gave a standing ovation to to the mayor as he handed the money to the woman. The mayor had the authority and the means to alleviate the woman's suffering, to reverse this curse in some small part. And so it is with the birth of the Messiah. He reverses the abandonment and instead gives a right relationship with God and a faith family to belong to. So you need to remember this verse today when it seems your situation is overwhelming. Listen, your hardship has a shelf life. It has a termination date that is set by God himself. This abandonment didn't last forever. God had set its limits. And so he has with the heartache and the difficulties we face as well. It's not open-ended, going on forever and ever. God knows when and how it finishes. And in that, you and I find strength and hope and endurance and peace in the one who comes, the one who's born, the Messiah, our Savior. So God's peace is for broken people. It's from a stubborn promise. It destroys the curse. Finally, God's peace is everlasting. God's peace is everlasting in verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 describe this everlasting reign of the Messiah. And I want you to keep your pen handy. I want you to scribble down some words. We're going to do this machine gun style. Five characteristics of the Messiah's everlasting reign in verse 4 alone. First, just write one word, secure. His reign is secure. Verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock. The he is a reference to the Messiah, the one who comes out of Bethlehem, the ruler for Yahweh. He will stand and shepherd his flock. He doesn't just stand up. This is just not a comment about posture, sitting versus standing. This is a defiant pose, a protective pose. He stands against the threats to his little sheep. The shepherd stands over his flock. Second, write down this word, mighty. His reign is mighty. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Do you know what that kind of strength is like, the strength of the Lord? It is omni-strength. It is all power. There are no challengers. There's no weakness, no kryptonite to be found. He has all strength, all power, and that's how he shepherds his flock. In the strength of the Lord, the strength that creates galaxies, the strength that creates black holes, the strength that invented Saturn, the strength that gives you freckles, the strength that knows your name. That's the strength with which the shepherd cares for his flock, the strength of the Lord. Third, write down this word, majestic. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. There's divine glory that accompanies his shepherding work. Remember, this is a shepherd for 
me, for Yahweh is what God has told us. Fourth, write down this word, triumphal. His reign is triumphal. And they will live securely. Who's the they? It's that little flock. It's me and you. It's the shepherd's people who live securely. He stands and shepherds, we live securely. Here's what's so unique about the peace that God gives. Peace is not merely the absence of conflict. It's not something other than uh, God himself. Peace is conflict over, war done, and it is the presence of blessing above all else. It's not a clean slate. It's like you're put into a supercharged situation where the blessings of God, his abundant life, is yours through your trust in the Messiah. That's what this peace is like. It is other than any other peace that our culture or our world talks about. It is the absence of conflict. It is the presence of blessing. We live securely. Fifth, write this word, universal. His reign is universal. They will live securely for then his greatness will reach. How far? To the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, even the south shore. That's how far his reign will be extended. Now we've got this last line that sums it all up for us perfectly. He will be their peace. In the face of the siege and attack of verse 1, the exile of verse 3, and every other sad event of our lives, we have a shepherd, a shepherd who is secure and mighty and majestic and triumphant, and his reign is universal, and he is our peace. Peace is a person. It's Jesus Christ. It's not just some condition he creates. It is he himself. And he's our peace because he suffered the violence of our sin. He loves you this much. He's born. He comes to reign. He comes to glorify the Father. And He will do that by laying down His life in your place. He dies for our sin. A death that we are responsible for. A death that we deserve. The sinless, long ago promised, triumphant, strong, mighty shepherd Savior from God dies in our place. He rose again three days later. And that stubborn promise is still true today that whoever calls on his name will be saved. So Micah from Morasheth has given us so much this morning. He's told us that God's peace is for broken people. It's from this stubborn promise. It destroys the curse. It is everlasting. It's a beautiful picture of our Savior, Shepherd. On the night that Jesus was born, a company of angels made a birth announcement to shepherds. Now, they could have picked anyone, but they picked shepherds. They could have made the announcement to bankers, or to government officials, or to farmers, or to moms, or to priests, but they chose shepherds. And we aren't told explicitly why, but if I'm making a guess, I'm thinking it's to remind us that the good shepherd has come and with him has come peace. And Luke tells the story this way in chapter 2. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Let's pray. Lord God, how we need your peace and how you delight to give it. So today, Lord, I ask that you would awaken faith in my friends in here that haven't walked with you, haven't surrendered to you. They don't know your salvation, but they are made in your image and they are precious and valuable And you have done this for them out of love. So God, I pray today that by their faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again, that they would receive your peace, a peace with you, a peace with the people around them, a peace that enables them to live lives that bring glory to your name. We praise you for the one that took the violence of our sin. Praise you for the one who fought and won the war that we cannot. Grateful for the one who has reversed sin's curse. Though we were dead in sin and marked by abandonment, you have come and rescued us to the uttermost. And we praise you for this salvation. So God, I ask that you would open our eyes, our hearts, our hands, that we would receive the gift of peace from you. That we would receive Jesus Christ and live our lives in full abundance under the strong watch of our shepherd's care. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.